Okay, good evening everyone. Thank you very much for coming. Uh, I'm Svetlana Chernik. I'm a postdoctoral research fellow here at the Latin American uh, Center. And I have the pleasure of introducing our uh, first speaker this term, uh, Dr. George Mazaros. And he, um, he is a professor at the University of Warwick. And he'll talk today about the social movements, law, and politics of uh, land reform with the focus on Brazil. So just a, a quick reminder about our format of our lectures. We have a 45 minutes for the speaker to deliver a presentation. And then we will open it to questions and discussion. Okay? Thank you. Uh, thank you for inviting me. That's the first thing I should say. It's a pleasure to be here uh, and also to be opening. I'm usually used to the, the what they call the graveyard shift, you know, sort of between four and five where you have to wake up the audience. So uh, that's nice that I have your attention and I hope I keep it. Um, I mean, the ti it's very funny how books get titles and, and uh, really this is a book about the landless workers movement in Brazil and then editors spin them in various different ways uh, and it's called uh, social movements law and the politics of land reform lessons from brazil and i actually think there are a lot of lessons uh, to be learned um, from the brazilian experience i mean i think it's for others as it were to draw those lessons it's for you to draw those conclusions um, how did i i mean i may as well begin by just saying how i actually got into studying something like this I remember seeing uh, in, in meeting up with, he was the then Attorney General of Brazil, and uh, he had these crazy ideas of uh, impeaching Fernando Collor. Uh, and I thought, the guy doesn't stand a chance or he'll end up with a bullet in his head or, or something like that. It was just a chance meeting that, that we had. I was sceptical. And I think most of you know what happened. I mean, he was, we can argue about whether he was impeached, was he pushed, did he run, all those sorts of things. But he went. And the institution that became uh, associated with that was indeed the Attorney General's office, which was the Ministerio Público. So that was one thing. Uh, the other thing was, uh, again, well, it was a meeting with the, his deputy, the Deputy Attorney General, a few years later. And I was really shocked because I had expected a fairly complacent view of the Brazilian legal system. I was by this time working uh, with the law department at Warwick University and a previous incarnation, I mean I did my PhD on the Catholic Church and trade unions in Brazil looking at Lula and uh, relations with the church and so on and uh, law had played a very uh, inhospitable role uh, to the strikes of the late 70s and early 80s. So in a sense I was primed, uh, as it were, to take a dim view of the possibilities uh, of uh, progress either through or uh, relating uh, to the whole legal sphere. So along comes the Deputy Attorney General and instead of singing the praises and saying look at these marvellous laws that we have and so on and so forth, he gives, I won't say a blistering attack, but it, it takes an extremely critical view of the legal process. And actually, when you start looking at figures who work within uh, the justice system of Brazil, many who would call it an injustice system, uh, they are extremely critical. I think at the end of this month, on the 29th, we have Barbosa, who's uh, turning up at uh, King's uh, College uh, to, give a, to give a lecture. And I'm sure he will have critical uh, remarks uh, to make. So that got me thinking and I became, you know, I thought, well, I wonder what's, what's happening. I began to look at the landless workers movement and to raise a few questions in relation to it. And I'll come on to those questions uh, in a moment uh, after I first show you a picture, as it were. And this is a photograph I took uh, on the 5th of July to last year and it's a meeting and I uh, this isn't an apple so I can't kind of expand and show you who people are and so well no prizes for guessing the person in the middle uh, and then you have uh, uh, two leading ministers one dealing with social affairs and one uh, with uh, agrarian reform on her, her left and right respectively and these people here are from a variety of uh, social movements. Some would say the the usual suspects. That's Frey Sergio Gorgon. I don't know if many of you know, but I mean he's very uh, closely related to land policies in Rio Grande do Sul over over many many years. Um, 
And then you have a figure to his right, uh, Conseil, uh, his surname, uh, from the MST, and they have the kind of trademark uh, red hat. And oh my God, the studies that could be done on branding and the MST, because you immediately, you immediately pick them uh, you pick them out. And I'm raising, why am I raising this photo? Because it isn't actually, I, I suppose this is a tale of two halves. Part of this book is quite optimistic. Part of the emphasis is upon uh, the importance and the role that social movements can and do play in relation to legal change. Uh, but there is a kind of a postscript, and I'm beginning in reverse order. I'm beginning with the postscript, and I'm beginning with, I suppose, what at might one level, what, uh, one level might look like a great success, um, which is they have the ear of the president, no less, and senior ministers, uh, and you have these are uh, figures from a variety of uh, social movements. There we go again, and it was a very jovial atmosphere. And it was a long meeting, two and a half hours. You know, at a certain point, I leave. In fact, I left before the meeting. They said, come on in and stay. I said, no, 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 that's fine, absolutely. I don't want some uh, thug to sort of throw me out halfway uh, through. And those are the kind of participants that they had. So you had Gilberto Carvalho, as you can see, Secretaria Geral da Presidencia da República, and Pepe Vargas uh, from Desenvolvimento Agrario. Um, and someone like Gilberto Carvalho is symptomatic of important changes that have taken place. I mean, his department, I mean, he's very senior, and he can knock ministerial heads together, okay? So if you really want it to happen, and he has the ear of the president, if, if they want it to happen, by God, it will happen, resources will be provided, etc. So at one level, this seems to be a great success. You'll notice, by the way, further down, about halfway down the list, CONTAG, National Confederation of uh, Agricultural Workers, really a, a big player. People often look at the MST and uh, I know of a scholar who was writing a, a, a paper on the MST and saying how great it was and so on. And I was saying, yes, but we also have to put the MST into some kind of perspective because agricultural workers' unions, actually, in terms of their, their weight, their numerical weight, are far more significant. And they played a long uh, historical role. But anyway, that gives you a sense of the kind of range of actors who were, who were present there. So what, I hear you ask, or maybe some of you ask. And I'm saying, I suppose, in, with this photograph, that it, it illustrates a series of paradoxes that surround the landless workers' movement, um, which I deal with in, in, in the book. On the one hand, I would argue that it underlines its continuing importance. It does indeed have the ear of the president. I'm giving you the positives at the moment, so I'm going to spin it as positively as I, uh, as I can. And I think one of the great achievements of the MST, and it uh, through direct <coughs> action and land occupations, was to place land reform uh, really centre stage. I'm saying see photo, let's see what the photo is. There we go. That's what we tend to think of when we talk about the landless workers' movement. Again, I mean, you know, they say a picture paints a thousand words or whatever the expression is. I mean, this is, this is actually a fascinating picture. And I was thinking of using it for the cover of the book and decided against because, you know, it would need too much, much explanation. Uh, and I think the editors agreed. But a little bit of uh, a few words of explanation about this one. Um, this is on a very important arterial motorway uh, in, in Brazil, in the state of Sao Paulo. And it's an occupation occurring in the early 2000s in a sugarcane plantation, okay? Uh, so it's what you would call productive land, and that's a concept that we'll come back to later on. And I suppose these sorts of events like this are, in a way, the movements, they're the hallmark of the landless workers' movement. They're very much its kind of calling card. They're a way of bringing attention uh, of people to rural questions, and in a very particular and distinctive uh, way, uh, and a way that really shocked people uh, when, they, when it first happened in the mid-1980s, but in a sense, in a way that's become almost an acceptable part of the discourse. I don't want to exaggerate that point because it generates huge hostility, but certainly there is uh, more sympathy and more understanding, and they really did transform the discourse on land reform. They pushed it up the political agenda in a way that no one had really succeeded in doing, and they did something also very special. They, as it were, agglutinated, dispersed forces, and that's 
no mean political achievement to really bind people. And you're talking about the most vulnerable people imaginable and to bind them together as a political force and then to push that up the agenda and then to do it for more than three decades is by any standard a remarkable achievement. So as I say this is their uh, this is their calling card and I suppose what I might say about this and that's why I call this a tale of two halves really is in a way this is uh, them at their I hope I've got the right way around. Zenith, we're at the the top. You know, really, uh, this is uh, this for me is in a sense the MST on its most offensive, uh, in the most difficult of areas. Why? Because as I say, they're occupying productive property, and that creates all sorts of tensions. It's one thing to go and occupy a piece of fallow land that apparently is doing nothing and quite another to plant yourself in the middle of a, a sugarcane field. Okay, so as I say, uh, 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 they really put the land, land question centre stage. And let me just illustrate that very briefly um, with, and I think many of you will have seen these data. These aren't my data. They're, uh, they're from Data Luta in, in, uh, in Sao Paulo. But here we go, occupations between 1988 and 2009. And nine. So let's see what we've got here. Um, what can one say about this? I mean, you start on the left, 1988. You probably can't see those figures, and I probably have to duck. Um, but you've got sort of 10,000. The following year, 89, 20,000 drops down to 1990, uh, 7,000, 15,000 uh, 15, again thereabouts. And you can see there, though there is a mushrooming, uh, a mushrooming. Of, of occupations until you reach a, a point in 1999 of 113,000. And note, these are families in occupation. Okay, so for each one of those is four or five individuals. So it's, again, a sense of scale. I don't have it here with me, but if, you were, if I was to pull up a map uh, showing where occupations were taking place. They were across the, really the swathe of Brazil. You have to go to Amazonas and Acre to sort of find a kind of gap and a, a blank, a kind of terra luna. But really, there is a, the, the breadth of occupations, again, it's, it's quite remarkable. This is a truly national movement. And again, I would say that that's no mean achievement. But you do notice, though, uh, as it were, 2004, we have a high point. 111,000 occupations, and then we have a process of decline. Uh, 71,000, 57,000, 69, 38, 37, and it's going down thereafter. Okay, so as I say, that's part of the kind of general story. You get people like Noam Chomsky earlier on saying, you know, the most important social movement in the world and so on, and you have to write those things in books like this and so on. I took a kind of more a particular kind of focus, and I say, and I note it here, in these waves of conflict, uh, they, prepare, they propel the movement to, in, to national and even world attention, um, but also it would propel it into major legal conflicts. Uh, what's, what I, is the first point, as I say, historically speaking, direct action by the MST saw many members charged with criminal conspiracy. That was the routine way of dealing with social problems. And again, I think it puts that first photo into some kind of perspective. Uh, the attitude of the federal government, and land reform is a federal question, uh, is actually a positive one, if we're talking about the PT uh, governments. Okay, uh, um, But nonetheless, as it were, when it comes to charging uh, the movement with criminal conspiracy, you go and occupy land illegally, uh, that's something that happens at the state levels through the Ministerio Publico, through, through the Public Prosecutor's Office. Again, think of the Collar government, its relationship with the MST was notoriously fractious. So again, there's a real, there is a sense of transformation, and that's what I'm trying to push with you a little bit. Even, the third point up there, even Fernando Enrique Cardoso's government took an increasingly aggressive and punitive stance against occupations. Uh, as the book shows, in private, uh, it urged the various states of the federation, that's to say the public prosecutors in each of the states, to toughen up their stance on the MST. In other words, I want you to go 
and prosecute Nelson Jobim, who was the then Minister of Justice, would came to the Sao Paulo Attorney General's office on a kind of, uh, not some, what do you call it, the tours they used to have of Europe, the kind of art tours and so on. But this was a repression tour. The idea was, I'm going to lecture you as to what you as prosecutors should be doing. You should be getting more of these people behind bars. <coughs> And part of my argument, I suppose, is to say, and why I became interested in this subject, was to see, well, how's the legal system responding? And in the case of Sao Paulo, absolutely fascinating, the Attorney General there, who was a progressive at the time, uh, said, by all means, come and sit at our table, but in our house, we are the people in charge. So, for instance, when Jobim came along, he showed, and the colleagues from the Ministerio Publico showed respect, and brought him in, but he made sure, the Attorney General, that he sat at the head of the table. Jobim was a guest. We're in charge. And that's, a, that's the product of many, many things. It was partly a personal view of the Attorney General, but it was also partly a kind of historical sense that the Ministerio Publico had suffered enormous problems during the dictatorship and had been able to be leaned upon, and it was determined to flex its muscles as it saw fit. Okay, so that even that happened under Fernando Henrique Cardoso's government. And incidentally, I don't take a negative view or a profoundly negative view of Cardoso in relation to land reform and so on and so forth. But this is certainly a distinct dimension that was present. So therefore, in symbolic terms, the, the photo with Dilma Rousseff underlines the transformation of relations between the MST. Again, let, let's just take an example. Tarso Ogenro, the, the former Minister of Justice, uh, under Dilma Rousseff. Uh, yes, he'd been a Labour lawyer. Yes, he was well known to stand on the left of the party. Uh, but she put him in charge for a variety of reasons. Oh, rather, uh, uh, sorry, uh, uh, I should say, um, uh, Lula uh, put him in charge for a, a variety of reasons. Uh, and, and he was kept there even when the pressure for results from landowning groups was intense and he was severely attacked for again failing to take the kind of line that Nelson Jobim had, had taken. Um, so there's an unwillingness to attack uh, the MST and put pressure on it in that sort of way uh, and uh, as I say here you have really the president giving space and it was a very cordial meeting I can tell you that even though, and there is a bottom line, and the MST and other groups didn't get what they wanted and they were what they were after, which is substantive progress on the question of agrarian reform, which is really the kind of the flagship policy. That's what drives the whole thing. Okay. But in other senses, I think the photograph uh, underlines what are quite profound and enduring uh, difficulties. And what are those? But I think they can be characterised in one simple word, a, a situation of impasse. And I think that's, as it were, that's not what this book deals with. It deals with a more specific set of questions. But that's the situation in which not just the MST, but the other movements in uh, the rural sphere find themselves. Why were they there? Okay, why were they there? Well, it's quite interesting. They were there for a number of reasons. And ironically, one of the reasons that they were there has absolutely nothing to do with the rural question, with the land question. It has to do with a series of uprisings that um, uh, convulsed a number of Brazilian cities where we all saw on the media how some sort of uprising had emerged for rather inchoate reasons and there was almost a sense, palpable sense of panic on the part of the presidency and a desire to be seen to be listening and Gilberto Carvalho was a kind of is an important minister in uh, taking the, those sorts of discussions forward and establishing a way forward uh, with a variety of social movements so yes on the one hand the federal government is indeed willing to listen and the culture of criminalization by federal authorities has been completely transformed uh, although some people question that if you ask the MST themselves and other movements, they would acknowledge that. Uh, but land reform as a political project is, from my perspective, unfortunately, largely off the agenda. 
paradoxically, it, along with the MST and other social movements, has been sidelined. We return to that at the end. I'll go further. It's not only been sidelined, the tendency is to sideline it even more. In the past, I think people might have said, well, it's a complex area and there's the detail of land reform and so on. One gets a feeling that as a project, it is actually now increasingly being questioned. Let me give a specific example. The Minister Carvalho referred in a press statement to uh, settlements, land settlements, as being the equivalent of rural favelas. And that sort of a statement, some people said it was a rather infeliz, an unfortunate expression. He's a very intelligent individual. He knows what he was talking about. In part, he's also right to the extent that there is a question about their economic viability and a variety of, of things. But it's very, very emotive language. And it's the sort of language that really puts that whole project uh, into question. As I say, we'll return to that at the end. Okay. Questions regarding uh, the law and politics of land reform in Brazil. Um, I suggested elsewhere that by 2009, on the 25th anniversary of the MST's founding, 370,000 families, and I've said five members per family, had been settled on land acquired as a result of MST struggles, and a further 130,000 were intended encampments struggling for land, this sort of picture that you saw earlier on. Uh, as I've said already, they transformed the political discourse on land reform, and um, and they were those achievements, and I think that's important. That's the direction I want to head you down. Were were uh, they, they they were gained, as it were, in the face of massive conflicts with the uh, Brazilian justice system. So w my study focused upon many of those legal and political questions surrounding the conflicts. Uh, initially, that's at the end of the 90s, I wanted to explore whether the MST even had a concept of law, because at that stage people frankly didn't have a clue, and the tendency w was that you got sort of third-hand accounts. Here are a bunch of people sort of uh, going and occupying land and uh, as some saw it they were merely baderneiros, you know, kind of rioters and so on. So part of it was actually just to map what the hell is out there. And I wanted to see, did it merely eschew law on, on the grounds of its routinely repressive nature or did it learn to exploit the possibilities, political as well as legal, that were available? Okay. Uh, was there, to coin the phrase of Griffith's quote-unquote, a politics of the judiciary uh, when it came to questions of land reform. I mean, he wrote about the politics of the British judiciary and that caused a storm in this country. Um, uh, people are much, much more accepting of the possibility of a politics of the Bra uh, Brazilian judiciary. What about the fate of land reform, which was a hotly debated part of the 88 constitutional settlement? What socio-legal factors impinged whether positively or negatively, upon its implementation. For instance, were interventions by the MST accelerating the process of reform? I mean, that's a thing to ask yourself. Does it merely lead to a cycle of, no, we will not, we will not stand, we will stand against this sort of unacceptable pressure, the rule of law, democracy, etc. If we give in to you, we'll give in to every Tom, Dick and Harry who does that. What about the public prosecution service or Ministerio Publico? Was it assisting, assisting or hindering change? And what were some of the factors governing that? Many observers uh, at the time, and I, I think, you know, as I say, one goes back to Collar and that sense of possibility. Many observers saw the Ministerio Publico as an organization really full of potential when it came to achieving greater social justice. So one of the questions I had was, does it make any difference on a question of this kind as opposed to environmental questions and so on. And what about the land agency, INCRA, uh, the Instituto Nacional de Colonização e Reforma Agraria? Now, it was constitutionally charged with bringing land reform about, so in a sense it's absolutely crucial. It has a legal department. It has you know, swathes of lawyers uh, trying to 
uh, acquire land under a variety of uh, conditions. They can expropriate land, they can buy land. There are all sorts of ways of uh, acquiring land. That was its job and its other job, it's not merely a land acquisition service, it's to actually implement land reform, which means investing in and putting in infrastructure uh, in, into those um, uh, settlements. So to what extent did this federally funded agency succeed in carrying out its legal duties? And what were the factors, especially social and legal, that influenced outcomes? Um, rather than kind of, because it's a long book and we have a limited amount of time, what I'm going to do is kind of sort of briefly answer, and then we'll look at a few elements of case studies, as it were. I'll briefly answer the questions. So one was the, the, the Griffiths thing, was there a politics of the judiciary when it came to questions of land reform? And my findings, and there's nothing particularly revolutionary or earth-shattering about this, was that undoubtedly uh, that was indeed the case, and that assumes a variety of, of uh, forms. What were those forms? And that's interesting, you know, when one talks about a politics of the judiciary, are you also talking about questions of culture? Yeah, or method, a kind of methodological individualism. They're also, you know, it's quite a complex question. Uh, but this was clearly uh, governed by an excess of proceduralism. I remember I have another photograph, I can't show it to you, but that's uh, Lula, who was then leader of the opposition, going into a courtroom uh, with the head of the MST at the trial of José Jaina, who at that time was a member of the MST, with lots of water under the bridge, and he was on trial for murder. So there we go, Lula, uh, it's a pretty senior figure, okay? And he goes, he goes in and the judge throws him out for not wearing a tie. Yeah? This, I think, gives a sense of uh, the sort of perspective and the narrowness, as it were. It was, it was really uh, sort of symptomatic. And, and that's also very much brought into, into the courtroom. So there's an excess of proceduralism. And here I've said there's also a skewed reading of the Constitution. I, say, I said a 19th century reading of the Constitution that elevated property rights to an absolute status while demoting other constitutional provisions like the social function of property to near oblivion. So it's, a, you know, it's how do you want? What's the methods? What are the methods that you apply to your reading of the Constitution? And a lot of people will say, judges included, that uh, it is, uh, much of the time, it is antediluvian in that sense. What this study wasn't was a kind of systematic analysis of the politics of the judiciary. And that's really, really hard and hard to do, the kind of direct relationship between cause and effect. One of the cases that I look at in the course of the work is one where the Supreme Court gives, in effect, a kind of ringing endorsement to the MST. Uh, I won't go into it at this stage, but when I asked the judge, who was a very high, he was the chief justice in terms of criminal procedure, a guy called Vicentius Senichiaro, and when I asked him, so what's been the impact in terms of the reverberations of this, he says it really does depend from state to state and judge to judge. Yeah? So it's great for, so there is a, a diversity. The, the way that the Brazilian justice system is set up means that actually you can have a ringing and a cracking case, but it doesn't mean it will necessarily have a sort of binding precedent effect of, upon lower instances. And that makes things rather problematic. But anyway, uh, so, but I'm saying, as it were, anecdotally, I would say there's a kind of 19th century attitude to property. Uh, judges also had, and that's quite important, a habit of inflating property compensation prices. It's not my study. Um, uh, it's a study done by Shigeo Shiki. And it looked at, in other words, what happens when uh, INCRA, the land agency, attempts to acquire properties uh, through the courts, which it's bound to do a lot of the time because landowners resist, and what compensation do the judges give? And Shiki and company found that on average throughout Brazil, the multiple was five. In other words, whatever the market rate was, judges would tend to multiply it by five. But in worst case scenarios, it went up by a factor of 14. Now, 
you may say, well, you know, so what? It's a question of justice and so on. But if you have a limited pot of compensation, and if your whole legal system is squared and based upon the idea that you go give just compensation for, and you find that pot is eaten up in a, in a few compensation judgments, what do you do with the rest? It creates a blockage. And I think that's also one of the findings in the book, that the legal system, unfortunately, is often part of the problem and not just the solution. Okay, what about the fate of land reform? The second question in sort of Brown, uh, which was hotly baited part of the 88 constitutional settlement. What socio-legal factors impinged positively or negatively uh, upon its implementation? Well, I've already indicated uh, the judiciary is an important variable. Uh, clearly, other, uh, impact, uh, other factors had a profound impact. Uh, one of them is, I mean, the morosity or slowness of reform owes much to the continuing power of landed elites. We'll talk about that later. But that comes out very, very clearly in case by case by case. And I think one of the things I also wanted to do when I was looking at these questions was not to say it, land reform doesn't happen uh, because they're all corrupt or they can't be bothered, or there is an absence of political will. Because I find those explanations, while they help us up to a point, they're not really particularly convincing. A lot of the time you have very rational actors trying to do the best they can, but who nevertheless fail. And I think that's interesting. You know, why does it still uh, fail? Okay. By contrast, were interventions by the MST accelerating the process of reform? And my answer to that is, yes, unquestionably, they were. And again, that's accepted by the agency, INCRA. You find it in their data, and you find it when you ask the key players, does it actually accelerate reform? That's a kind of problematic finding, because you would have thought, why must they pressure in order to do something that the state should be doing of its own accord? Yeah? Why must reform or transformations happen as a result, much of the time, of external social pressure rather than because of, for instance, something that is already the DNA of the Constitution itself. Uh, there was a correlation between political pressure brought about as a result of land occupation and the propensity of INCRA to engage with the process of reform and back this up with funds. In other words, yes, it can engage in a variety of ways, and again, one of my case studies shows uh, a chief of a head of a regional land reform agency really going to the wire attempting to push land reform forward. He had actually been a public prosecutor and his view was it's legal, it's clear, it's obvious, we should do it, therefore I'll do it. And in the end he was sacked and he was sacked for political reasons but I think those reasons are absolutely fascinating so I hope we can come to those uh, in a moment so it's not just about funds it's also about the politics did the MST have a concept of law and an effective means of operating within its often severe constraints did it merely issue law on the grounds of its routinely repressive nature uh, well, the answer to this is that initially, in the mid-1980s, the answer was uh, yes, it had a very sceptical view of law, it um, was deeply suspicious, and it eschewed it. But over time, it developed a more sophisticated understanding of its possibilities, and that's something we often see with social movements developing sort of legal departments. And then one of the questions is, to what extent do the legal departments begin to call the tune and the shots, saying, no, 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 you can't do that. Because if you do, it'll be illegal. Think of Greenpeace recently in Russia. Can you imagine the sorts of debates that they may have had about do we do this? What are the consequences? Are you willing to take the consequences? Why do we do it? But it's breaking the law, etc., etc. So that's a kind of a, that's an old uh, dilemma. Uh, the relationship, as I say, was complex. Thus, for example, the trap into which I've put it here, other social movements like Contact fell in the 70s when they increasingly subordinated activity to a legality test, was avoided. Now, one's got to say immediately, hang on, 
But uh, Contag was working also under very, very different and difficult conditions. Those are the conditions of dictatorship. In a sense, with a redemocratization process, the MST could afford, as it were, to push the boat out. Um, but certainly there was a kind of culture uh, in, in Contag that sort of went in that direction. And in a sense, the MST was set up partly as a rejection of that more accommodation. So one should be very careful because actually Contag made huge contributions and numerous Contag militants were killed and so on and so forth. But you really the relationship, if we talk about you know, which came first, the, the horse or the cart, for the MST it's very, very clearly kind of clear. Political action is absolutely number one, no matter how sophisticated its kind of legal understandings, and they are, that's part of my argument, no matter how sophisticated its legal understandings uh, became, they are subsidiary to overall movement objectives. Uh, that said, the positive contribution of law in terms of movement legitimacy was also recognised. I refer you back to the previous case where I said they had a resounding victory. You should have seen the number of times the MST would produce papers that say, you know, occupations are constitutional and legitimate, using a sort of phrase uh, from, from uh, the, the, that particular judgment. And I've said here at the very end, put simply, it, law, could offer leverage, valuable political leverage, not just getting people out of prison and things of that kind. Okay. What about the Public Prosecution Service or Ministerio Publico? Was it uh, assisting or hindering change? And what were some of the factors governing that? And I, the answer to this is a kind of yes and no. It's, it depends. This was something that one of my supervisors a long time ago used to accuse me of. He said, you know, you always say it depends. And unfortunately, with the, uh, with the Public Prosecution Service, it does indeed depend because of its federal structure. Not only that, but also because of the highly autonomous nature of each individual prosecutor. There's that sense of they have autonomy and that cannot be, as it were, impinged upon by senior personnel. And that creates difficulties. Um, as I say here, Brazil's system depends upon the makeup of prosecution services in particular states, while each attorney general has considerable power, and that includes patronage and promotion. It's not as if these factors don't exist. Uh, she, he does not have the capacity to mandate prosecution policy. This is highly devolved. Again, that's a kind of partly a kind of reaction to the dictatorship. We don't want to be pushed around. Um, uh, it meant that one could have reactionary prosecutions at the grassroots in states where the leadership was socially aware. Broadly speaking, though, there is a sense, okay, I'm not going to go on the one hand or on the other, I'm going to be pushed into a corner. Broadly speaking, though, there is a sense that prosecutors are, like their judicial counterparts, quite conservative, although there are notable exceptions, and I'll briefly detail uh, some of those. What about the land agency, INCRA? Uh, what, uh, which was constitutionally charged with bringing about agrarian reform. To what extent was it succeeding in carrying out its duties and what factors, especially social and legal, influenced outcome? Um, and here the devil, unfortunately, is in the detail. You know, I mean, I remember talking to Graziano, José Graziano, and he would say, quite rightly, when one talks about something like agrarian reform, you know, agrarian reform really depends. It's so variable, the climatic condition. It depends from state to state. In a way, there is no such thing as agrarian reform. There are agrarian reforms, those things that you can or cannot carry out in each state, even for purely technical reasons, including soil fertility or whatever it happens to be. So one has to think about it in a more nuanced manner. And certainly when one starts thinking about the politics of agrarian reform and the, the way that this meshes with the legal system that is indeed very much conducted on a state-by-state -state basis. Let me just make things clear. It is a federal issue. There's no question. Okay, The jurisdiction is incras. It's not for local states. But the question of the conditions in each of the localities is an absolutely vital consideration if you think about why does it or why doesn't it progress. Uh, the various factors that have impinged upon it include social pressure from landowners. Indeed, that's where, in a couple of examples, where land reform initiatives grind to a halt despite the best intentions of, functions of the functionaries of INCRA. Legal resistance of landlords in the court. 
Court's intervention of federal government when vital interests are threatened. Remember, yes, we have to think about our alliances. We have to think about these very, very carefully. And sometimes you may find a kind of paradoxical situation arises whereby the federal government may indeed be in favour of uh, the progress of land reform in a particular area, but it, the fear that its alliances in the Senate or in the Congress will collapse or be threatened as a result means that it takes quite a conservative position. I already referred to lack of funding. And there's one other thing, incidentally, which is resistance within, within INCRA's own ranks. I have plenty of examples of lawyers who say, um, actually, they're working for the other side, if that's the right sort of terminology. They, you know, they, they're not, they don't see it as their mission to carry out land reform. It's a kind of, it's rather problematic. Okay. Um, I think there is actually, yep. Yes, in fact, the, I think there's a tiny bit missing. I mean, this is simply, uh, what we have here is, just to finish off the, the, the point about um, uh, the kind of the persistence of land reform problems, um, that it's, it's a table from Sauer and Pereira, um, and it's a 2006 census data that showed that farms of less than 10 hectares still accounted for 48% of all rural establishments, but only occupy 2.36% uh, uh, by area. That contrasts with properties over 1,000 hectares, which account for a fraction, 9.91% of all rural establishments, but which occupy more than 44% of land. Look, I mean, I can't show you this in detail and we don't really have time. If we want, we can look at them afterwards. But that sense of the persistence of unequal land distribution is very much with us and alive today. And I mean, it's fascinating. You know, there are the politics, it's not really the politics of the judiciary or or the politics of the land reform, the politics of statistics, yeah? Actually trying to establish uh, a new set of productivity indices in Brazil, uh, which should be a fairly technical question, has proved impossible. Lula wanted to do it, the president wanted to do it. Productivity indices determine basically whether a particular property can or cannot be expropriated. If the property is deemed to be unproductive, then it is conceivable that it can be expropriated for the purposes of land reform. But then we get into a big argument about what is or is not productive. The key point is that in Brazil, the statistics used to calculate productivity go back to the mid-1970s. Yeah? So we have a system which is stunningly productive, but for the purposes of land reform, prefers to work on statistics that don't take account of that and go back to the 1970s. And that is a means of actually preserving, to a considerable extent, the status quo. Okay? Well, let's just quickly move on and start looking at some of the state case studies. Um, I mean, I looked at... How much time do we have? Five minutes. Five minutes? Wow, we're going to rush this then. Okay. Um, I looked at three case studies. I'm going to take it off the top of my head, as it were. There are three states that I decided to look at, which were Sao Paulo, Paraná, and Rio Grande do Sul. And I did that for a couple of uh, key reasons. One was because I felt that these were states that had the very best to offer in terms of the Brazilian justice system. Uh, as a rule of thumb, I remember hearing a judge saying, the further north you go, and, you know, above Rio de Janeiro, it becomes medieval, the justice system. So my argument was, as it were, well, if you're going to look at the best it has to offer, head south and take these areas. The reason I also took these states was because the MST was quite strong uh, in them, but also you had a third factor, which was, to varying degrees, quite supportive governments. Okay, I'm going to stick with the kind of title and uh, talk fairly quickly about this. This was a chapter called Shocking the System, Social Movement Pressure as the Catalyst of Political and Legal Change. That's a corner of Sao Paulo State where the MST um, engaged in a number of land occupations of what are termed terra devoluta. And terra devoluta is basically land that has been expropriated by private individuals but actually still belongs to the state. But the key point is that the state for donkey's years, never mind had been in cahoots 
with many of these landowners, but also had decided it didn't really want to do anything about it. And what the MST did in the mid-90s was to say, and here's the interesting thing, they were alerted to a 1958 court decision that told them the nature of this land, and they thought, aha, let's turn our guns in this direction. Um, and what they did was they began to occupy this region. Now, that immediately, and here we get that sense of leverage, that put landowners actually on the defensive, which is not a position that they're accustomed uh, to being in. Why? Because the argument, well, we own this, is rather difficult when the actual uh, precedence of this land is suspicious. Well, it's more than suspicious. It's clearly been decided. It is illegal. Okay, so this is, a, this is as I say, this is the corner of, uh, of Sao Paulo. And some of these occupations, in one occupation, they had to go in and be thrown out by the court and in and out and in 23 times. So that gives you a sense of the enormity. I'll skip this thing on devolved lands. I've said to you, as, a, as I said, it's a 1958 court ruling uh, that uh, allows the MST or alerts the MST to the possibilities. Um, interestingly, some prosecutors sought to prosecute members of the MST for their illegal occupation. They t and they, they kept to the kind of criminal side. So we have these strange uh, positionings. Interestingly as well, uh, over time, and this is the kind of the bullet point and the headline, the Sao, Sao, uh, Sao Paulo state government led by Mario Carvas hatches a deal. And here's the crucial point. It had been known these lands were devolved. Previous governors had wanted, in fact, to take on those owners, but felt that they simply did not have enough power. Fleury, who was a governor, I think, from 1991 to 1995, um, you know, he had wanted to take them on, but felt he just did not have the relationships were so antagonistic. Mario Carvas, on the other hand, decided that he would. And that was actually quite crucial. So I suppose what I'm arguing, and it's this last point here that I think you can concentrate on, whereas I, where I say confluence of factors lead to a positive outcome uh, described by Graziano Senior as the closest thing he'd seen to land reform in Brazil. Power was part, landed power was partially broken. Uh, and that's, that's remarkable. It's kind of microcosm of a study of land reform. One, you have to think about the various factors that pull together. That's one element, the willingness, of the, as it were, the political willingness of the government to go out on a limb on this. Without that, it's really questionable whether progress would have taken place. Okay? I think in, in, instead you would have had mayhem. And that was a fear of the, of the government. There was another component, though, here. And that was a local judiciary willing to take on the creative legal thesis of the state government. I mean, again, I can't go into too much detail, but the local government saw a way of breaking the impasse. In other words, it had to supply land quickly, but the legal processes were very slow in doing that, and yet it had people who were uh, occupying land. So there was huge conflict. How do we break the impasse? And they basically said, well, let's go for a kind of injunctive relief, which is will allow you to occupy the land temporarily. Interestingly, the lower court judge actually accepted these theses, and it's fascinating hearing her reasons for doing so. And one of those is she said, actually, law has a profound social impact, and I felt I had to take that into account. So she accepts those quite creative theses. She is overturned at a later instance. And I think this is where law and politics really collide. Because in a sense, it doesn't matter, and it didn't matter at that point. Why? Because they were able to settle the workers temporarily, and a new dynamic was created. In other words, let it work its way through the courts. And it did work its way through the courts. So the decision was reversed at the regional court, and then finally made its way up to the high court. It took a while where it was, as it were, upheld. So the position of the government of Sao Paulo was upheld. But if we said, as, uh, as a matter of legal, formal legal process, it would have been absolute hell to pay. So the decision that the judge took at that lower instance was absolutely crucial. And as I say, it opened up a, a, a really significant political dynamic. OK. Um, I think I've dealt with that, and I'm aware of the time. Um, 
Let's just see, here's a little quote and an example of a prosecutor and why he took the attitude that he did. And it's this third point here, why he wanted to criminalise the MST. Our legislators, the law, protect property. So any act against anyone's property is considered a crime. Remember, this is in the context of devolved lands in Sao Paulo, so it's an interesting point he's making here. The law also protects rural property. It protects the dominion that people exercise over that area. The law does not question the legitimacy of that possession. That's important because the MST makes great play of this. No, but it's illegitimate. The title was forged, end quote. This depends on proof. It depends on a process of judicial recognition. Until this occurs, again, we go to the proceduralism and stages, until this occurs, the law protects the property. It protects that uh, tenure. And that was an interview with uh, this particular prosecutor. Um, and by contrast, you get an utterly, we can look at it later, an utterly blistering uh, counter-decision uh, by the Supreme Court uh, that basically says, um, um, well, as I say, a, a whole variety of things, but amongst other things, this is not a question of stealing property. This is in partly what these social movements are trying to do is vindicate the rule of law, that aspect which deals with questions uh, of land reform. Let's just move on. Uh, yes, it was a resounding legal victory, that particular decision, which we can go back to later, but it was also a resounding political victory, and I think it cemented that sense of the importance of law uh, within, within the MST. I'll just do this one example, okay? How much have we got? We've run over now. We've run over. Okay, so I'm going to keep this really, really short. These are sort of bullet points of Rio Grande do Sul. There's a map of Rio Grande do Sul. The area that we're dealing with is Bajer, which at one level it's kind of an irrelevance and so on. But when you realise that um, President Medici, who was kind of associated with the most repressive phrase of um, the Brazilian military dictatorship, came from this town, uh, you begin to realise perhaps it's more important than we think. It's one of these reduto, uh, I suppose, you know, uh, poles, um, key political poles. Okay, so there we ha have Bajer. What happens in the case of Bajer? As I've said already, Inca is duty bound to appropriate land, expropriate lands that do not meet productivity criteria, and it can do so. Uh, if they don't. But he has to do a stage first, which is go and look at the property, a vistoria, an on-site inspection. Um, again, under pressure from the MST, uh, the INCRA decides it will start an audit. Okay. Now, again, interesting things, the head of INCRA at that time is very sceptical about the movement, and he, as it were, transformed his view. But under pressure from the MST, he decides, yeah, actually, it's a fair enough demand. This is what we should be doing anyway. Um, and he's a public, former public prosecutor, and he feels that the law must run its course. He's determined to carry out inspections. What actually happens? Interestingly enough, civil disobedience from landowners. They try and set up blockades. Again, we find a local judge who decides to authorise the use of force on Inca's behalf. Why? Because it is an open and shut case. This is one in the sense that no judge in their right mind would refuse. Um, threats are made to the federal government by allied landowners, and we find that the then Minister of Agriculture, Prachini de Moraes, intervenes and says there won't be any audits. Uh, there's plenty of land. And all Inca has to do is to buy land on the open market. Now that begins to put the whole role of this institution into check, yeah? Or as one, I think the head of Inca at the time said, he wants to turn us into a glorified estate agent. You know, one has to say, well, what does the Constitution have to say about this? Uh, uh, but Pratini de Moraes has an interesting uh, history behind him. Uh, what happens though, Jungmann, who actually appointed, who was the then Minister for Agrarian Reform and appointed Barbosa as the head of the public ministry, ends up sacking him. And the reasons that he formally did so is because he felt uh, he should not be exceeding his mandate.